everybody. I'm Dr. Scott. Hi, and I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. And today, due to request after request, our episode is a true crime documentary review on the curious case of Natalia Grace. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. How are you, Dr. Scott, after our London trip? I'm great. I used my Stag's Breath Honeymead Whiskey and Prosecco for a cocktail last night. The oh, little wow. old lady at Edinburgh Castle wouldn't let me leave without forcing me to buy a <laughs> bottle. It was well worth the purchase. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, can I come over and you make me a cocktail? Please <laughs> come over and drink with me. We are long, <laughs> we're actually long overdue for that. We, we really like, are. It seems like the only time we're getting together is when we're out of town that's crazy i know and or like we do a lunch here and there but we can't drink in the middle of a work day well we could but we I shouldn't mean, that's true <laughs> that's true <laughs> well it's good to be back yes this is our first recording since actually being back and we did a live show yesterday one of our live streams and we couldn't rave enough about our experience in London. So we were telling our folks there, just if you have the time and the means and the wherewithal to attend this festival, well worth your time and money. We wouldn't steer you in the wrong direction. It no. has a very no. good vibe and, you know, it was just had wonderful, wonderful speakers and people that you won't meet here necessarily at any of the festivals in the U.S. So all of that, everything that you said, plus, you know, we, we talked a lot yesterday. We won't, I won't go back into what we already covered yesterday, but we really thought very highly of the organization, the mm -hmm. choice of speakers. There were some people that you would recognize from the U.S. We got to hang with our dear, dear friend, Jamie Gehring, yes. which was phenomenal and very timely and weirdly weirdly synchronous because as you and I were presenting yes one of the last points we brought up was we presented we did a, a version of our presentation on incels we took basically a three-hour presentation that we do for law enforcement and we boiled it down to about 45 minutes which was difficult in itself just yeah. to get everything in but and we couldn't one, get everything in so we were no, we entertaining some questions afterwards we got a great question that brought up this topic right so I kind of one of the things that that we talk about in our wonderful previous collaboration with with James Fitzgerald, a former special agent with the FBI, who was integral in finding the Unabomber. We talked about if Ted Kaczynski had, was was active today, living on his own, even though he issued computers and technology, mm -hmm. he really fit a lot of the criteria for being an incel. And there were some very like wide eyed <laughs> looks in yeah. our audience, like within seconds after my saying that, uh -huh. and every you know, a lot of people rushed up that Ted had passed away. Right, um, they got the alerts on their phone right then and yeah, there. Very, yeah. very strange. And then later that night, so of course, Jamie having written the book about living next door to him, she was there at the festival. And then that night, there was a fire alarm that went off in the hotel. So three a.m. in the morning, Jamie and I are sitting on a couch in the lobby in our pajamas, and I'm like, 
so can we process this <laughs> as we're waiting for the all clear? <laughs> and she actually wrote, it, it's in the Huffington Post, a really touching, interesting yeah. article about, you know, finding out about his death and grieving for the person that she grew up knowing and the conflictual feelings with all the harm he's done in this world. So it was a really- yeah, But I, I'm going to even go out on a limb as far as CrimeCon UK and say that I would recommend it for people to go to. It was surprisingly mm -hmm. affordable. Mm-hmm in a fantastic environment. London was a blast. You know, it was the height of tourist season. Yeah. There's a lot to do. There was a lot to do literally within a 10 minute walk of the hotel. Oh gosh. And it was a great venue. Yeah. I mean, it was just really, really well done. So, I mean, I know that that's an expense for people, but talk about an intense, enjoyable and manageable mm -hmm. um, conference. Just can't say enough good things about it. So yeah, there you go. So let me give a, a Recap. Do we have any other housekeeping? I think no, I don't think so. No, we're back in episode 144. We presented you with a very interesting section of case presentations and we entitled it Brutal Brothers and Sinister Sisters. We explored the concept of siblings that engage in the commission of horrific crimes of murder together. And there are a wide range of factors that can bring family members together in violence. So we covered the various theories around this phenomenon. We reviewed a few of the most egregious examples that included the murdering twins of Conyers, Georgia, the Wichita Horror Brothers, and the Irish Scissor Sisters. And yes, we also touched on the recent discussions about the Menendez brothers because they are back in the news. Yes. Thanks to another documentary. Yes. <laughs> but aside from our documentary today, anything that you've been watching or reading or consuming, listening to lately? Well, no, again, just a lot of entertainment stuff. There's a great show I highly recommend called The Bear, oh, which is okay. about a restaurant. It's a show about a restaurant and it's a fascinating character study. It's really great. It takes place in Philadelphia, I believe. Yeah, we're just like catching up on, you know, more entertaining light stuff, which mm -hmm. is a, a nice balance. What about you? What are you diving into right now? Uh, on the airplane on the way back, I finished the last season of Barry, which had a very underwhelming finale. But, you yeah, know, they all can't hearing. be perfect. And then I also started Perry Mason, which has been out for a couple of seasons. So I finished season one of Perry Mason, which is great. It has all the old vintage stuff that we talk about. Oh, great. The case from season one and then what it starts out with is kind of a take on the Marion Parker case. And then like a version of Sister Amy is very involved as a character throughout the season. So it's a little slow, but I really like the characters in it. And I think all of the L.A. noirness is what's keeping me engaged. I'll probably watch season two. And then I actually I picked up a book at the Oxford prison, old prison and castle in London. That's Victorian crimes A to Z. And it's just like little, maybe a few pages, little snippets on different people, different crimes in the Victorian era and like topics. So it'll, I'm still in the A's, I believe. So like assassinations is in there and oh, wow. it talks about Queen Victoria having you know, seven assassination attempts on her life. And it's really interesting from, so it talks about, it could be like a detective, it could be a perpetrator, it could be all these different people just kind of going through their names A to Z. So it's, it's a fun, fun little read to pick up and read a few pages each night. Very cool. Yeah. Well, so here we go. Let's jump in. Let's dive in. The Curious Case of Natalia Grace is our documentary this month, and it's an investigation discovery production 
we watched it on Max. It's a six-part docuseries with this IMDb synopsis. This docuseries offers extraordinary access and exclusive insight into a world-renowned mystery. Initially assumed to be a six-year-old Ukrainian orphan with a rare bone growth disorder, she was actually a full-grown adult. Okay, so that's the synopsis, which is... Already leading. Already misleading. Yes. Super, super. Yeah. If if you were to read that going into this, they've already duped you. So we'll just go with that. <laughs> well, and also we also kind of duped ourselves and did, yes. so did one of our so did one of our Patreon members who asked <laughs> us to cover this because you and I are used to covering things that are maybe three episodes, and we were like, "Fuck, this is six, six episodes." Damn it! I know. And then, well, what also makes it more difficult is as you within in the first 10 minutes as you're introduced mm-hmm. to the main person you're following through this entire shenanigans who is an intensely unlikable person. Hang on, we'll, we'll get to our thoughts about it. Okay, all right. <laughs> so anyway, there is some Hollywood crossover here with the obvious choice of title. It's tipping its hat in a way to the curious case of Benjamin Button, which was a fictionalized fantasy about a man who ages backwards, which is sadly okay. about me. Of we don't course. like to talk about that. I think that this documentary got made only because there was the 2009 horror movie entitled Orphan. Yep. That movie is about a couple who loses their infant child. They adopt an orphan from Russia who turns out to be a 33-year-old <laughs> psychopathic female from Estonia with a horribly murderous past. Yeah. And then there's a prequel that just came out last year which is called Orphan First Kill. Oh my God. Literally the best tagline ever. There's something wrong with Esther. You know, Speaking of which <laughs> Esther did not show up at CrimeCon UK. How so dare Esther, you, Esther. How very dare you, <laughs> You had your chance. No. <laughs> so much so, okay, when I when this Natalia Grace documentary came out, I was like, oh, is this the story they made Orphan after? Not realizing that like right. Orphan totally came first. I had right. to go back and look at the date, but it's definitely using that to their advantage here. Oh, absolutely. So the producers on this are Evan and Shannon Evangelista. They've done a couple of miniseries like reality TV, nothing notable that I'd heard of. And it has received an audience Rotten Tomato score of 67%. Um, Which is uh, honestly, that's higher than, than I, I'll say that's generous. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's pretty generous. And with all, you know, I, I respect anybody who's successful in any field and good for Evan and Shannon. I don't know if I'll ever meet you. I don't know if they'll ever hire us for anything after, after today, (laughs) we give our opinions on this. Hey, it's wildly popular. I think it's the most. Yeah. Who are we? Like they don't give a shit about us. Everybody's everybody's talking about it. So, you know, who are we? Docu best rated docuseries that investigative discovery i guess has done and it's everyone's talking about it including us so right yeah so we're we're, we'll kind of break this down by episode but the story mostly takes place in westfield indiana and we're immediately introduced to the barnett family michael and christine were a couple married for about 15 years when this occurred and only michael participates in this documentary but they start with old footage that they seem to have gotten the rights to of some sort in these earlier episodes, but he is absolutely front and center. So I think it's a good, you know, as you alluded to, to talk about our thoughts on Michael. So he's the father, the husband in this story, huge reactions to him right off the bat. My husband walked in the room for five minutes and he's like, who is this ass clown? (laughs) That was literally his reaction. Yeah. Very animated, very wide-eyed. I think you were put off and uncomfortable by the, uncomfortable 
with this person right away. What do you think? Well, look, if someone is telling you a story, a good storyteller or someone who's expressing themselves finds narrative beats and there's a rhythm mm. to the way they there's a rhythm to our conversation that is not about our speech patterns, but it's about the way we affectually present emotional content. And Michael starts on a 10 point scale, he starts at 15 yeah. and only goes up yeah. and it is, it's exhausting. It it's is absolutely exhausting. And, you know, we'll, we'll get more into this later, but you come away from this whole series going, what the fuck did I just watch? Mm -hmm. I have no idea who's telling the truth. I do know everybody's lying. It's at yeah. least something. So, but even like, like your husband is saying, or is observing is like 10 minutes in, you're like, this is not a reliable narrator at all. Sure. Yeah. And I think I might even have made a note about this, but I felt like coming away from this as, oh, this was like a case study on him, not Natalia Grace. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So, yeah, I mean, he's very willing to like lay out the family drama and the struggles and throw stones and throw blame. And by the end, by the fifth or sixth episode, you realize, oh, this is someone that is terrified of going to prison and is really like and it's it's sort of being filmed in real time when we get to the end of the court proceedings. So, you know, that's always in the back of your head, too. It's not like this is all resolved. And now it's after the math. Story. There's a there's a lot more that's probably going to come out over the years on I don't, I mean, I have no desire to cover it, but, um, yeah, well, and I hope it does because true. It sounds like, I mean, I will, we'll offer some conjecture mm -hmm. about what we think about the last episode, but I will say this, like now that I've come out the gate talking about how uncomfortable I am with him as his presentation, you know, you pointed out something about he's very willing to throw stones. There's another part of that too. He takes no responsibility for anything. He gives lip service to taking responsibility for the mistakes he's made. Mm -hmm. But they're always mistakes that he made are always contingent on somebody else's doing something. Yeah. I only did this because I should have done this, but I was powerless. And I want to, you know, just because I want to be fair in the domain of domestic partner violence and IPV that we don't even have accurate stats on men who are victims Mm -hmm. of IPV or emotional abuse by their partners because men are much less likely to report it. And I came away by the end of this thinking, I, I, I actually do believe some of the things that he was putting out there yeah. about his relationship. Yeah, I think the thing to remember is that the majority of the narrative is being told by Michael right. with very little cooperation on most of these incidents, which is tough because these are events that he's talking about that happen inside a house where a family can easily keep secrets, where there aren't other eyes watching. And it just, again, lends to you don't know what to believe, especially when, you know, really the one of the only other important people that could have a voice in this is Natalia, and she gets painted as a liar, which we'll get into, but we should move on. Yeah. And that's very important for what you're saying is that it's all inside the house. It's all all told historically, and yet they're filming everything. Yeah, I had a real They're filming with that. every interaction with Natalia, which is quite disturbing, quite disturbing. But, you know, he is very much into presentation mm -hmm. and he's very much into talking about everything that his family had. I mean, they the family seems very well off. Kristen and Michael have three boys. They have their eldest son, Jacob, who is on the spectrum and is clearly a math genius. I mean, it's like there is absolutely no denial 
denying that this this young man is quite gifted in this way. And a lot of their life revolves around Michael and his achievements, although you only ever really think I'm maybe he's a vet. They really kind of avoid. I don't know. That... I think he's a veterinarian, but I'm not oh, sure. I mean, okay. We could probably find it on a search, but I'm just not going to put any more work into it. Yeah, but they have like a lot there. They have invested a lot in their son, Jacob's achievements as well. Exactly. I mean, yeah. And a lot of their I mean, I don't even know if they really have a social life, but clearly like when they realize and there are books written about their son and their son is mm -hmm. on the talk show circuit mm -hmm. because of his genius. So, you know, that is really sort of a center point of their life. And they even open up a foundation for ASD families that includes a daycare, which yeah. is kind of amazing, like a daycare that presents with functional and appropriate containment and treatment for children on the spectrum, which is wonderful. I mean, it really seems like a remarkable family from the get go. They've got privilege and they are highly invested in, in giving back. The, the only other core family member to participate in this entire narrative, though, is Jacob. And he is now an adult and living in his father, Michael's basement. And this is a very, very different residential setting mm -hmm. than the earlier things. The earlier things were McMahon mansion, right. like Instagram, perfection, everything perfect. And this is like a, a pretty shoddy house, not so much from the outside, but the inside looks. It also looks like the production crew took down a lot of pictures. You see a lot of empty spaces on the wall with nails. Yeah. So I think maybe for purposes of confidentiality or that they didn't get permission, they had to take some things down. Yeah, maybe even they're renting some rooms in that house. You know, could be. I, they oh, don't yeah, really yeah. say, but but right. yeah, Jacob is is taking up residency in the basement of this home. I, I think one of the things that's really I admire him for taking part in doing what he can do. And he talks about some very difficult things through the production as well. And he's very open about the fact that this whole experience has kind of contributed to him regressing somewhat from where he was before. This is a kid that was a teen TEDx presenter, yep. very successful. And he is definitely a few steps back from that. You know, it looks like almost it's, it's they're kind of framing it as if maybe he peaked mm -hmm. when he was 14, when he enrolled in this master's program, but also just a shit ton of people are interviewed <laughs> in this documentary over six episodes, way, way too many. Michael's mom and sister, neighbors, acquaintances. Some of it seems unnecessary or intentionally confusing, yeah. like the, the self-proclaimed nosy neighbor who really, she didn't have anything to say. There I were other like, people that... What are they doing spending so much time on her? Right. I mean, I think it, some of the later stuff, they talk to the neighbors who have a reaction to being a neighbor to this supposedly adult. Mm -hmm. And you're, you feel badly for them because at that point, the narrative is very negative towards Natalia, right? Because you right. think that she's the antagonist. And then later you're going, you know, even those neighbors are realizing, oh, my God, this is what was really going on. So that frame I thought was pretty cool. I mean, we can't cover all these in depth, but it does seem like the doc tried to cover all the bases. But it just felt like I guess it just left us feeling like we were they were grasping at straws. Yeah, at times. yeah exactly. So at some point, the Barnett's decide to adopt a daughter to add to the family in 2010. And the adoption agency is in Florida. And they call with a little girl with dwarfism and basically say, you guys have 24 hours to decide. Is that, I have no idea if that's normal. Is that a thing? Like 
take it that leave is not it? normal what? at all no Re- uh, he, that's this is another point too red flag red flag yeah, red flag that they one. all ignore yeah yeah so this adoption agency even michael says like we show up and it's kind of shady and something like a strip mall like, yeah you know, like in a crappy part of town right right with a very shady woman who's very demanding yeah all sorts of weird vibes but anyway the the girl is named natalia and she has a ukrainian birth certificate stating that she's six years old born in 2003 and apparently she had been adopted but those adoptive parents have changed their mind and are returning her if you will and according to michael they like don't question that they just kind of swoop in as these you know playing the role of rescuers and say yes and decide to do it. So since they're in Florida, to me, this was pretty disturbing. And I don't know if other people really caught it because after a while, after, I had to think about it. But, you know, they think they're going to be these rescuers, adopt this girl. And then immediately while they're there, they do this big Disney trip with everyone, you know, the three yeah. boys and this little girl. How like zero awareness to how overwhelming this could be for a little girl who's a stranger and they're strangers to her. I mean, like I I saw it as them wanting to sort of flex and be like, Hey, check us out. What an amazing family we are to fold her in like this and like give her the world. But I mean, I don't know. It just seems so off-putting. It seems very performative and very non-respecting of Natalia's physical impairments. She has a very rare genetic disorder. You know, there it's a a specific type of dwarfism. She's very, even though she is very mobile and energetic, you know, she does not have the same body distribution or limb length, you know, and the entire world Mm -hmm. is geared towards people. Sure. Without these kind of disabilities. So I, I completely agree with you. I think that performative aspect is a red flag on their part, but it's also a red flag on returning a child. And it's one of the things that really pisses me off. And we're going to give an example later on, which yeah. is eerily, eerily similar about returning quote unquote problem children mm-hmm. when there may be some challenges. Any you would expect a child that's been abandoned for any reason to have some challenging issues. But I think more so this is uh, the the problem is in the parents who are very focused on being rescuers and being seen as like these loving and many times there are a lot of religious people who who do this. And frighteningly, the number of them that return children is really concerning. Mm. So yeah, pretty quick after that Disney trip you're talking about, they get home and almost immediately there are some concerning indications, allegedly, that something is not right. And the first is that Christine is giving Natalia a bath for the first time. And allegedly, Natalia has full pubic hair. And and Michael hears this huge scream from the other room, Michael, Michael, Michael. And then he comes in and he witnesses, he sees it himself. However, this is one of the first things that is a number of contradictions is Michael tells these stories about these things that he supposedly witnessed Mm -hmm. that he then contradicts later on. Mm -hmm. And this is one of them, one of a number of these types. And then following that almost immediately, mom Christine asserts that she has discovered Natalia has been stuffing their son's socks into her underwear to soak up her menstrual blood because she's experiencing menses. Right. And she's then throwing the socks out the window. 
Mm-hmm. Shady. All of it sounds weird. Well, I mean, besides like the faking thing, like yes, I mean it, it's weird. It's shady. Like okay, the first time you're giving her a bath is when you come home, not when you finish your Disneyland trip. Okay, but also just and then I pivot and I go, how horrific! What if she did like, oh my god, Michael, come look. How shaming is that to this child? Because there could have been some hormonal issue going on for a child as young as six, where it absolutely could have. Yeah, right? I do not care how old she is. She's obviously ashamed of this if she's hiding the fact that she has a period, which is just sad. You know, I feel sad for her. Yeah, there's there's a few things that can happen. I mean, six, if that was her true age. Yes, is very young. There is a phenomenon that we call precocious puberty when a child's body begins changing into that of an adult too soon. And that generally for girls is when that happens before the age of eight. I did a little bit of quick and dirty research. There is nothing that indicates that dwarfism triggers early puberty. So it doesn't seem to be related to that. However, what it got me thinking about was all of this research that's coming out post-pandemic about girls globally that are starting their periods earlier. And we know that chronic stress can trigger that. And that's why we're seeing something with a global issue happening to girls all around the world. So, you know, it might be somewhat of a leap, but can we at least say that Natalia has probably had some pretty heavy stress in her life? as a child, if not full on trauma. I agree. I want to offer something else as well. That's a that that bolsters strangeness of that particular incident is, you know, Michael, as a highly expressive, emotive person, very reactive in his emotions. I will say this is from me as a clinical perspective. I have noticed that highly reactive clients tend to perceive the world in an altered way. Mm-hmm. Someone could look at them and go, hey, you know, I really don't like you leaving your dirty dishes in the sink. So just be an adult yeah, and wash your dishes and, you know, help me out here. But what they hear is you fucking piece of shit. You're leaving your goddamn dirty dishes in here again. And you're an awful person. And I hate and then they they perceive it differently and they go, this person was screaming at me. Yeah, true. And I get that very strongly. Uh-huh. from him that uh-huh. he just perceives being at the effect of the world all the time. Sure, makes sense. So, what's the third part? Now, as they get her medical evaluations, her doctor introduces her to another family with a 6-year-old girl who allegedly has the exact same condition. And the first thing that they notice is that there's very much a, a difference in their appearance. And mm-hmm. I'm not a medical professional, but they do show video of the two of them sitting together and they there does look like there is an age difference why much of a difference or what yeah right yeah definitely i mean i think this was the first of many times that i asked myself or was screaming at the tv like why does there not seem to be more medical investigation into her condition and the developmental issues both biological and you know physical and emotional like a full battery like get it all done yes like I don't know. And I, and I felt like, okay, I'm not getting the full story here because otherwise it just felt like the the medical pediatric community, I don't know, like where the resources not there. It just, 
or is this part of the narrative that exactly. we're being fed yes. by the documentary? Yes. Like, I, I, I don't know. But the next point that you wanted to hit, which is so spot on, is that she supposedly does not recognize the Ukrainian language because they, the parent, parents find out, oh, here's a person who speaks Ukrainian mm -hmm. and that she suddenly clammed up and she would not share any memories of, of the orphanage. Right. Uh, and they're so shocked by this. They're so shocked. Like, like it's a trick. This poor traumatized child, you know, is refusing to talk in the native language, but they're assuming that she doesn't know it. They're immediately mm -hmm. jumping to the fact that she doesn't know Ukrainian. But this could completely be a trauma response. Yeah. And also, if we are looking at that age of six, if she is six years old, mm -hmm. she could be chronologically six years old. She could be biologically six years old. She could still be emotionally three years old. Sure. That's a possibility. So sure. how much can she actually remember given all these changes? And by the way, she just got dumped by another family. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I felt like that was a setup. Almost like, let's find someone who speaks Ukrainian to see if she reacts to that. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. It, it felt it gross. It felt very manipulative. And it, it, you know, all this takes a turn. Michael spins this as them feeling duped. You know, you were just saying we as the audience feel duped. Right. And here's Michael going, no, 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 we're, we were duped and we're suspicious. Again, like you said, no finding any experts to help them determine what's going on here. It's so frustrating and it's so relieving later on when there is an expert who is pushing back against an asshole attorney, an oh, asshole man. of attorney. Christine and he's like, sure hired a guy, didn't she? Ugh. She really did. She <laughs> she hired. Well, interesting. We'll we'll get to that. Okay. But I love that the doctor was like, yeah, I don't I don't give a shit what you say. Yeah. And yeah. then the, the, the attorney's like, you're disrespecting me. Yeah. Like, oh, come on. I know. But anyway, the entire at this point, the narrative just completely turns on its heel and it's doing nothing but vilifying Natalia. Michael's talking about her dark side coming out, about her intentionally soiling her pants, personally wiping fecal material and urine on her siblings and blood, her attempting to cause mental distress to the family, like jumping out of a car, throwing their toys in the street, like framing it in this sinister way, like she was trying to get them to run into the road. It doesn't help like the slow reenactments of a child well, dropping toys and dropping street. a toy in the street, right? <laughs> I immediately thought if this was happening and this child is experiencing Experiencing something, she has very limited arm length mm -hmm. and dexterity. So they're saying that she's intentionally wiping fecal matter on their beds. It's like, well, is anybody assisting her in right. going to the bathroom? Has she been taught hygiene? Does she know? So there's this whole idea. Everything is framed as if it's intentional right. and developmentally, it's totally appropriate for kids to be destroying their siblings' toys. Like, there's nothing out of the ordinary uh, no. for that. <laughs> right? They have three boys. I'm sure that <laughs> happened a bit with the other Exactly. Kids. So, uh, supposedly, she was caught hiding knives from the kitchen under her bed. And Michael questions her, and she replies, I'm going to kill you in your sleep. Mm. Okay, so this all sounds super creepy at first glance, especially the way it's framed for this doc with like yeah. these slow reenactments. And I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the thing that is hurts me like her here. I'm saying hurts me, but affects me is the footage they use of her. And there's a lot of it, but it's also six episodes. So they repeat it. Mm -hmm. She looks so distressed. She looks like a child that is wildly, wildly distressed and is trying to be stoic. Oh my God, I know. Which is such a trauma response. It's That's such so a trauma response. hard to watch. 
those big eyes looking up at you, you know, because a lot of the footage is taken from like standing looming over her. But you're right, like almost like her arms are just at her side, like she is buzzing inside. And yeah, I mean, I'll offer not an alternative, but just an interesting note that actually one of our listeners wrote in about asking us to do this documentary. And I think she made a great observation about the documentary, but also highlighting some of this behavior that we're starting to see from the parents is something that's known as Cinderella syndrome, where abusive parents target one child, usually a stepchild or an adopted child with the one who does all the chores, receives all the punishments. And there's like this lack of affection towards that one targeted singled out kid. And I thought that had some merit to it. I mean, it really got me wondering, as we learn more about this seemingly being an abusive household, that Natalia was just an easy target for all of this. I think that there's some merit to that. Michael, there's one thing that Michael expands on coming home from work and Christine would be punishing Natalia over and over again with what would be an appropriate level of punishment for someone her age, which is, you know, nose to the wall for doing mm. something, except Natalia has severe, severe body differences. And if she was being, I mean, basically she was forced to stand in stress positions. Yes. If this is accurate, if what we're watching on these episodes is accurate. And right. Cause this is videotaped. Long, this is right, videotaped. Yeah. This is videotaped. We're watching this videotape, but Michael is also saying that he, he's coming in and out of the house three times a day and she's always being punished with her nose against the wall. So he's implying that she's there for very long periods mm -hmm. of time. Don't know if that's true. If it is, that's abuse. That's yeah. just clear abuse because her spine is absolutely twisted. Like there's an S curve in this yeah. child's spine. No, but you know, even though this is a documentary review, we, we do need to talk about the research and give a little recap on what's out there about adoptive children behavior problems. We cannot paint all adopted children with one broad brush. That's that's not fair. It's just like any other population. You know, there's outliers and there's some commonalities. All of them have individualized behaviors and needs. However, the difference is that some of these behaviors are learned and shaped in institutionalized living or in settings in their country of origin. And there's wild differences around the world sure. in how orphanages are run because they have very different views of children, mm -hmm. not saying that the U.S. is rah, 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 you know, has right. the highest standard. We don't. We should we need to have a higher standard. But children who are adopted may have behavioral issues such as violent tantrums or sensory self-stimulation needs in times of stress or excitement. And these kids can exhibit oppositional behaviors, aggression, depression and anxiety. And they can even go so far as beyond oppositional into what we would call conduct disordered actions, which means that they go a step further than being opposing to authority. They go to the step of violating the rights mm -hmm. of the people around them. However, they're children and they don't have a full understanding of the rights, the interpersonal rights of the people around them. So cultural differences may also affect the child's behavior in ways that may not be understood fully by the adopted family. And research shows us that children coming from institutional settings may have a difficult time understanding emotions in others because mm -hmm. they've been in a rarefied echo chamber of interpersonal 
relationships. And it can be wildly disturbing for them to be moved into this supposedly happy, shiny household when they don't know the emotional vocabulary. They don't know how to speak that language, right? right? Because their learned behaviors were adaptive in an orphanage or other environments that may well have been very maladaptive or inappropriate. So again, it's not only Ukrainian to English, it's institutionalized to non-institutionalized. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that lack of understanding emotions and others, we can talk about this as a known part of the research. And then here we have this documentary that's later going to have that sort of twisted into her being this little psychopath. Allegedly. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, many adopted children suffer from trauma as well as a result of experiences such as abandonment and or other experiences from their orphanage or foster settings. And understanding the causes of behavioral issues post-adoption is critical for helping the child and their new family through this period of adjustment. Therefore, really each adopted child and family would absolutely benefit from individualized assessment, support from education services, therapy, having a team of social workers around them and those that specialize in adoptive children, not just children, because we're talking about so many other layers of needs that are very, very specific. It's also noted that behavioral strategies used for biological children may not be appropriate for a child with a history of childhood trauma and adoption. So, you know, I think there's a lot we can reflect on here, just looking at like, you can't just bring a child into your home and think I know how to raise kids. And it's the same thing. Well, absolutely. No, I'm glad you said that, because that to me is the drive that so many of these families come in with like, well, I I'm already well versed in how to do this. Of course, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't I? And I'm saying that as somebody like I have cousins who adopted, you know, after raising their own kids, adopted more kids, and they are phenomenal parents, like they are phenomenal. And like, they've, you know, they're wonderful examples of people out there who successfully do this. But I don't know, it's there's a a wide range as well. And it Mm -hmm. seems like we should be able as a culture to try and narrow down the options of people who really aren't suited to doing this. But look, there's a lot to consider here in terms of psych issues regarding attachment forms. You know, attachment, we've talked about it in context of other episodes. It's the process by which infants and toddlers learn to connect and then later develop what are called reciprocal, affectionate and binding relationships, not only with their caregivers and their parents, but with other people around them. And it really influences the way a child relates to the world and forms a relationship throughout their entire life. So infants will develop secure attachment when their needs are met and trust developments. Doesn't mean that the parents have to be absolutely 100% perfect, but when they get their needs met and there's a trust that develops at the infant level of development. Right. I mean, very, very important because when an infant's needs are not met, it is possible for a disordered attachment to result. So the first several years of life are really the most important and yet the most vulnerable time for development of attachment. So there's a spectrum of attachment ranging from securely attached to insecurely attached to poorly attached and difficulties with attachment can really be lifelong challenges and keep therapists 
in business, really, because yes. it can not only result in difficulty forming relationships, but can also impact the individual's ability to self-regulate, control their impulses, control their reactivity, and their ability to understand the emotions of those around them and then respond in an appropriate manner. Yeah, so it's important to understand the process of attachment and the ways to facilitate healthy attachment after adoption. And in Natalia's case, again, if you think you've raised biological children just fine, and then you get a six-year-old with an unknown past, and you think that you're going to just jump in and raise her the same way without giving two thoughts to what could be going on underneath, I think it's a pretty naive or egotistical way to go about yeah. this. And then when it doesn't start going so well, God forbid you blame yourselves, right? Right. All right. So, so moving on to this point that we just kind of touched on and deep breaths here, Dr. Scott. So I okay. know this getting we, centered. we've already <laughs> chatted about this offline, but so Michael says that they take her to get a mental evaluation and that she gets diagnosed as a sociopath. And the evaluator tells them there's nothing you can do and you are in danger. Basically, he he frames and, it that that's all they're left with. <laughs> right. But Shiloh, the way you just said it uh -huh. was literally on a 10 point scale, you were at three. Oh, and the I way know. he says it was at, at 15 because he's just enormous, wide eyes. Everything is talking like this. And she told us there's nothing you can do and you are in danger. <laughs> OK, Seriously, bye. Thanks. Right? Get out of my office. Right. Yeah. OK, bye bye. Pay me. <laughs> So it's like, this is, you know, kind of this bombshell of like, <gasps> we have this evil child, right? He goes on to describe incidents where then they find her standing at the foot of the bed with a knife in her hand, where they describe this like manipulative plan where, you know, she sweetly comes in and asks Christine, may I help you with the dishes, please, mommy? And oh, well, yeah, sure. And then she gets up to the, do the dishes and they see her pouring a bottle of pledge into Christine's coffee. And Michael says that she admits when they say, what are you doing, Natalia, that she says, oh, I'm trying to poison you. Just nonchalant. She turns into the BTK all of a sudden, no affect, just talking about her plans to murder all of <laughs> like Right. But one of the problems here is that, again, Michael is telling the story. And as you find out many times throughout these episodes, he will say that he was present. And then mm -hmm. he'll later say, oh, no, I wasn't there. That's what yeah. Christine told me happened. He removes so himself. There's some logistical things here that are problematic. Again, Natalia has significant physical impairments. So we're supposed to believe that she crawled up on top of a chair to be able to access the sink and dry dishes for mom and somehow sequestered a bottle of pledge and then quickly with her very limited hand dexterity, which they talk about a lot, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she unscrews the bottle. I mean, it's none of it makes any sense. None of it makes any sense. I, I did want to touch on you and I talked about this yeah. earlier because I remember us when we were in the internship and it was like a slow day or something. And somebody had sent me a link said, you know, you really you should listen to this documentary on YouTube entitled Child of Rage. Anybody that's out there listening, I really, really highly recommend you watch Child of Rage. It's very informative. It's all about attachment issues. It's the story of what was thought to be a child psychopath because of she actually was 
trying to endanger her toddler siblings was adopted and dumped by a religious family that couldn't handle her and thought that they could pray away the behaviors. Mm. What emerges later in the story of this child in Child of Rage is that she and her two siblings were horrifically, horrifically abused and neglected by their parents. Her younger sibling so much that the child had been left in on his back in a crib for so long that there was brain damage because oh. the skull was not given the opportunity to form. So in this story in Child of Rage, what you find out later on if you do a dive and read follow up pages is that they got after she was returned by the family that was wildly inept and unable to care for her, they get her to an attachment specialist and an entire protocol. And this is from like the early 80s. Oh, yeah. This is not recent. They do an entire treatment residential protocol of really containing and creating an environment where she knows that she's safe. And incrementally, the behaviors start to go away. And it's this is not an easy program. This is one of those programs where your caregiver, you're sitting, touching skin to skin for hours a day. And there are times like for days at a time where the only time where you don't have physical contact is when one person is going to the bathroom. Yeah. And but there's research behind this that shows that it works. And apparently this this child is now like a nurse. She's like a like pediatric a, nurse. She's right? a pediatric yeah. nurse. And she her, you know, her identity has been changed because. It's it's really disturbing to hear her interview because you're seeing this sweet, angelic little child talking mm -hmm. about the plans that she made to kill people. Yeah. And she's dead serious about it. But let me I, that's what I would rather people watch than something like this, because it's it's validated. It's a legit story. There's hope as opposed to like this mishmash right. of a documentary series where we you're like, what are we watching? Yeah. What is going on? No, totally worth bringing up. And the, the YouTube link is in the show notes for you guys. But I would say like, again, we're still on episode one here. Fuck. I know. <laughs> But I, I swear we're wrapping it up. But throughout this episode, again, just right. to harken back to the video footage of Christine filming Natalia when punishing her or interrogating her, even about like the menstruation issue, they're asking her or like, why is she hiding that? And very strange, very demeaning, incredibly shaming. It feels abusive. And I feel like this is probably the best window into Christine's treatment of Natalia that we yep. get yep. because Christine does not participate in this documentary except for one snarky quote at the end that she gives them. But but yeah, I was just left with like, I hate the fact that, you know, this took place and I'm watching it right now. So yeah, well, one thing before we move on, I did want to say, and this is, you know, as annoying as I find Michael, I, I want him to be a reliable narrator and he lets me down over and over mm. again. You know, I and maybe other people would have a different reaction where they don't maybe, give yeah. a shit about him. I keep going. Why won't you be straightforward with us? But now, is it possible that the social worker or MFT or psychologist told came out and said, your your child is a psychopath. It's possible. It is highly, highly unlikely mm. because that's one of the rules of diagnosis is we do not diagnose personality disorders in individuals under the age of 18. We just don't do it like it's that's not done. Yeah, well, um, it's not a diagnosis anyway. And, and I get right. it. I don't expect Michael to know what's a diagnosis and what isn't. And if they just discussed these traits, 
that might be what he's trying to get across. But right, uh, or a conduct disorder, yeah. you know, like conduct disorder. And then maybe like, hey, you know, if the child is sequestering knives, you guys need to be careful and here's some of the things. But the way he frames it is like it's almost like we were directed to lock her in her room every mm -hmm. night. It's like there's a protocol for determining the level of risk that the child is presenting in the home. And he's just as per usual, he's skipping over all of that stuff. Episode two. So after, and we promise it'll move quicker. We just had to lay a lot of foundation. I'm going to shut up. I, I swear to you guys, I'm going to shut up. <laughs> so in episode two, Michael claims that Natalia tried to kill kill Christine by pulling her a full grown woman, uh -huh. a full grown woman, dragging her into an electric fence while visiting a farm. And oh, my God, the name of the farm. Do you remember oh. the name of the farm? I don't. I remember I giggled. But what is Traders it? Point Creamery. Ew. And I keep saying Traders Point Creamery, and I just kept laughing like creamery. it's the Traders Point Creamery incident. <laughs> oh, so basically, like, and this is another thing. Michael said, "Well, me and the boys, you know, she couldn't move as fast, so Christine stays with her, and we're a mile and a quarter yep. away." What the fuck are you doing? Like, the cows are not a mile and a quarter away from taking your kids to milk them. That is such bullshit. So anyway, Christine screams, and apparently he can hear the scream from a mile and a half away, or hears mm -hmm. the, the sirens, and she's called the cops to have them fifty-one fifty, Natalia. So again, another Michael's interpretation of what Christine has allegedly This said. feels like a total setup, right? Like, yeah. hey, I'm going to lag behind with her. You go ahead with the boys. And then there's going to be this incident and we'll get her 5150. Yeah. Maybe not, but that's what I came away from with all it, of this. It, it does. It feels like there's, it's, especially later on, there's a payoff for that as well. Mm -hmm. Natalian is taken to what's called the stress center. And it's an inpatient treatment facility. And she's kept for, I think several days. I don't know if it's a full week, but they have anonymous interviews with staff talking about how adult she was acting, how she was propositioning male staff and other patients. But it's also framed as if she's lying about her age instead of framing it as possibly a child who has been over sexualized oh, and abused. Totally. Yeah. At this point, I think at this point I was like, okay, maybe she might be somewhat older than her stated age, yeah. you know, not six, but, you know, maybe a little bit. And then, you know, she gets put into this totally different environment. And if she felt like she couldn't be herself with the Barnett, maybe she feels a little free to be herself around strangers. I don't know. And with stranger men. So now I'm thinking, God, has she had to engage in sex work? And, yeah, you know, has in she some been part trafficked of history? before? Yeah, like it's at the very least sexually abused. And why the fuck is she in an environment with adults? Like how I'm so confused about all of but, this. But then she also gets just charged because of the behavior. Yeah. They're like, well, we can't have this in here. Bye. Like, uh, oh yeah, you're on hold, but we, you're not like what? No, you, uh, it's so many things are. I know. I know. Weird. Yeah. So the family is very unsure what to do at this point, which if there wasn't so much weird shit going on by like if this was just a non-abusive family with a child for some, you know, with some serious concerns that they don't know about, I would feel really bad for them. Definitely. Like if you just don't know where to turn, right. none of the professionals are being helpful. That could be a really isolating and helpless feeling to know what to do or where to turn to. But it's a, just a big but. Like I could see that being really scary, but this goes in a whole different direction. <laughs> well... 
moving on. <laughs> Someone, possibly a neighbor, calls in a neglect report to DCS, like, or they call it DCS out here in California. We call it DCFS. And the police end up responding to their household to follow up. And one particular detective ends up taking a real interest in this case. And he goes as far as finding Talia's naturalization papers from Ukraine that are suggesting that she's older. And then he supposedly advises the Barnetts to correct her age with an attorney. Yeah. So mm. that all feels fishy, but it does. It's very weird. And police at this point also discover a documented criminal history, domestic violence in the Barnett home with reports from neighbors of them arguing in the yard. I felt like that was really a red herring. Yeah, because so it's like it was even Michael goes, that was a long time ago. And I think it's, you know, is it optimal? Can you have a healthy relationship without ever screaming at each other and calling the police? You absolutely can. Sure, sure. But it seems like if it's one incident from decades ago, that doesn't seem particularly germane to mm -hmm. what's going on right mm -hmm. now. Yeah, I thought, you know, the detective finding this conflicting paperwork, again, I could see this being conflated of like what advice he offered. A lot of times, it, I don't think law enforcement understands the power that one little sentence can have that people glob onto. Yep. So, you know, to make a casual suggestion of like, hey, you might want to look into this with your attorney. Like, I don't know. Maybe you can have this legally corrected. Oh, okay. Cop said we should do this. And like, it felt like an out for them. I could see that happening. But I, you know, that's, that's a well, legal area that isn't a... It is. And this is total conjecture on my part. I do think probably there is an, a little bit of an, 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 her age is off. But I don't sure. think it's really, I don't think it's more than two and a half years. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I think she might have been a couple of years older. And then because of her whatever she experienced, she likely doesn't know, but they go wildly over the top yep. with this pursuit of the age change. Like it's, to me, it's the most shocking thing. Everything else is all like conjecture and fluff and accusations. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. decision by the judge to me is. Yeah. Wild. So at the beginning of episode two, we're basically two years after Natalia has been adopted the Barnetts indeed get an attorney to file to get her age and birth date changed to 1989, which oh would put God. her at 22 years old instead of eight or nine, which she would be at that point if that's two years after they adopted her. It's very sketchy as to what medical experts gave their opinion because the documentary just kind of jumps around so much, grabbing interviews and footage from different years that, like you said, this is just very confusing and it almost feels deliberate. But basically what a judge decided to do is, yep, she's now magically 22 years old. And as the legal expert that they have on here, giving some commentary explains that the judge said something like, okay, so, you know, if she hasn't grown in like four years, you stop growing at 18. So, okay, that would make her 22. And if a judge yeah. had that much power to do that, that's insane. And very good point. This attorney to me is the only reliable person in the industry. Yeah, <laughs> she's, yeah, she's only... in a bunch of stuff. Like she's done true crime stuff before. She's, she's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. She's pretty clear cut. No bullshit. Um, she's also like the only she's also like the the one who seems to be waving their hands going. This is all messed up. Like yeah. everybody involved in this has completely messed up. Yeah. I love that she does that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know they just sat her down with this case file and was like, give us your thoughts. But she's not afraid to to talk about that. So what do they do? 
they're like, okay, you're 22. We're going to get you an apartment of your own. And they just kind of drop her off, check on her every once in a while. And she's basically at this point considered a disabled adult receiving some social service benefits, still needing some level of care from her parents. But yeah, they find this nice apartment, like single level apartment in right. a nice, cute little neighborhood. And there you go. Well, you know? they kind of they gloss over something that actually is way more complex. They once that was established that she's an adult, they go full bear and get her disability benefits which she now can fully qualify for mm -hmm. they get her snap card and they're a family of means so they can also supplement it but they're also the payees that becomes very clear is that michael is receiving that money mm -hmm. and what you get very quickly is you get feedback from the neighbors yeah and i i did I was glad that they came back to the neighbors later on when when the neighbors realize much later what has happened. Allegedly, Christine has drilled it into Natalia's head that every time she meets somebody, she has to say, I know I look young. I'm actually 22. Oh, right. Right. Everybody that she meets, they're going, oh, this person is differently abled. So they're seeing her as an adult and quickly that the tables change. Like she's calling us all the time. Mm -hmm. She's coming into our house. She's going through my refrigerator and eating and everybody's really annoyed. Like these people that first were very patient with her yes. are now really annoyed by it, not realizing that those are all age appropriate actions for for a child that would have been abandoned, basically. Yeah, of course. Maybe she's, she's not six. Yeah. Maybe she's really only chronologically, maybe she's nine, nine and a half years old, but emotionally she's much younger. Of course she's going to be eating. I mean, the all the behaviors they describe are completely understandable from a trauma aspect yeah. trauma perspective. Uh, of course. Kids want snacks all day long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially if so, they're bored. What else? She's not doing anything. They give her no stimulation at all. Nothing. Like, like there's a TV and like even there's a couple of times again, Christine's fucking filming everything. Yeah, Christine and Michael. And yeah. Here she is curled up on a couch, like just blank faced, you know, curled up in a blanket. But what have you what have you been doing? Nothing. You know, like they're just so accusatory. Uh. But, you know, there's interviews with the neighbors. There's a sweet older woman. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the ones that watched Christine drop Natalia off with some groceries. And then she witnesses Christine sitting in her car as Natalia is struggling to drag all these groceries inside. And another male neighbor was interviewed about how she would play with his grandson as a child and had the maturity of an older person. And then told him in that rote voice that she was in her 20s. Yeah. But then they all kind of come back and they talk about like, she definitely had some hygiene issues. Mm -hmm. She would wear the same clothes for days on end. She would be dressed inappropriately for the weather and that she really did smell. She had not been bathed in a, a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, it, let's say this is an adult, a disabled adult. Shouldn't there be some social services giving her? like basic life skills, maybe going. And I know later she does end up going to like an adult. Like in a day program. Yeah, a day program because that's that's in her next apartment. But I feel like she's also slipping through these social services cracks 
to for too long. I mean, eventually, well, but you also get the feeling, although it's not stated implicitly, you also get the feeling. Well, no, it is actually pretty implicit from the text. And there are a lot of texts between Michael and Christine. Mm -hmm. They want to limit her ability to contact people. That's they true. keep coming in and wiping her contacts out of her phone. Yeah. So I, I, I think that there's definitely a vested interest in Natalia not having access to other people. Mm -hmm. I think they might Isolating. have been curtailing that, yeah. isolating her. Yeah. So they also have these interviews with this younger couple that lives across the street, which for some reason they cue this weird like sitcom music. There is a weird soundtrack to this. <laughs> what was that? I'm like, what is happening? Yeah, that was really strange. <laughs> but they seem like really good people. They're empathetic to her, like you said, like very tolerant of what ends up becoming this, you know, in their eyes, this really clingy behavior by Natalia. You know, they're saying like it's giving them, you know, making them uncomfortable, but you can tell she's incredibly lonely. And to some extent, they're like, we get that. Like she has nobody, but they're saying, you know, she she was a pest to everyone would, like you said, wander into other people's apartments and text them all day to like see when they're going to be home again. Really like this desperation to be around and communicating with people. And, you know, he he had to set boundaries with her at some point, which given the information he knew, totally appropriate, right? But he starts saying these hypotheticals, like, what if someone breaks up with her? Like if they're in a relationship or, you know, I feel like if I cut ties altogether with my family, if I have to take these boundaries further, what's next? Is she gonna be standing over me with a knife? Kind of this like fatal attraction narrative that they're also contributing to. And you just don't know because, okay, do they know the story on the back end? What are producers sort of trying to get out of them? <laughs> but it's just interesting. But she she does end up, according to some of these folks, being somewhat inappropriate with male children. And of course, they're seeing it as An this adult. adult being inappropriate or trying to, you know, have some sexual touching or sexual play with you know, kids who are like nine years old. So, but at some point, you know, it shows them like looking out the window and like, you just don't want to interact with her because she'll stop you. And, and the quote was having Natalia living by you is like a Hitchcock movie, you know? Like they all were kept captive in their house because well, of this weird neighbor. True. Um, and you, you can't help but wonder, I mean, what information were they given by Michael and Christine? Where does this mm, knife stuff come in? Like, mm, you know, were they all primed to think of her as a dangerous adult yeah. living on her own? And she had also been answering questions. They would say, well, yeah. what happened? Well, I pulled a knife and I threatened to kill my mom and dad. Right. So all of it, again, just seems very, very strange again. And there is this implication that Christine had really threatened her. Like, if you want to eat, if you want this apartment, you, these, this is the way you answer these questions. I mean, that was what I felt like came from it. So DCS starts a new investigation with the same investigator after neighbors call in concerns about her not being able to care for herself. This was in regards to the hygiene issues. And Michael yeah. comes to the home, comes to the apartment, again, filming her while like interrogating this, yeah. her. The second yeah. he, she opens the door, he's got that camera on. Right. Interrogating her about that interview. And he's really inappropriately snarky. He's, mm -hmm. an, he's in being a complete asshole. Yeah, he's a jerk. 
Yeah. And uh, that ends really quickly because as far as he's concerned, she's an adult and DCS has no jurisdiction over yeah. an adult. They can't do much. But adult protective services could. And there's got to be a version of that. But that doesn't get addressed here. But there are some other concerning behaviors, like you were saying, that were well, at least they appear to be documented by some of these third parties that are interviewed. Natalia calls 911 one night and she said that she was stalking her neighbors and she was afraid of what she she might do. Mm. So that is framed as homicidal ideation. Right. And then there's also reports that she was sexually propositioning men in the complex. I will just want to say again, none of these behaviors indicate that she's actually an adult. None of them. Totally. All of these could be trauma responses. One of the things that you will find is after people are hospitalized, especially young people, they pick up a lot of habits after uh -huh. being in the hospital. They Because usually they're surrounded by other people who have been hospitalized a lot, who are more than willing to share their tips and tricks. I'll also say that because in my day job, I work with what we call here in Southern California, we call them high utilizers, the public services, that there are a lot of people, especially that are serviced by our regional centers, which for people with developmental disabilities, they form relationships with emergency services. Mm -hmm. And if they feel lonely and disconnected, they will make a 911 call and they will assert suicidality. They'll assert homicidality because they know that it means somebody's going to come out and talk to them and maybe even take them to the hospital for a couple of days or take them to the police station. And it's about connection. Yeah. It's not the best use of services, but it's a it's an, an adaptive behavior that is not serving anyone in the long run. But what happens is, is I think that all of this is framed as if she's a psychopathic adult and the apartment gets rid of her. They don't allow Michael and Christine to renew her lease. So they find her a new apartment <laughs> in a completely different town because they've decided they're going to move to Canada. Right. For their son. This all seems so sketchy. And it's in another town. It's in a really shady part of town. And it's on the fucking second floor. Yeah. So and this is again, if you don't see this, this young woman has really short deformed legs. And mm -hmm. you know, she's had multiple surgeries. She's still like the idea of her climbing up or even carrying, attempting to carry anything up a flight of stairs is just ridiculous. Yeah. And this is around 2013. So given the dates, sure. Natalia is either 10 years old or as they, as Michael points out over and over again, and as, an, as this asshole attorney points out over and over again, is that it doesn't matter what you say, doctor, she's 24 years old because the judge said she's 24 yep. years old. Yep. Which is really frightening. I mean, really, to look back on it is you're watching this, you're kind of like all over the place and numb by episode three. But to look back and go, holy shit, she could have been a 10 year old living in that apartment by herself. Ten and now yeah. she's dumped in this horrible high crime neighborhood as a 10 year old. It just, oh. Oh my God. So Natalia's living in this new place. Again, high crime area, dangerous living conditions for her disability. And we're introduced to a new neighbor, which I love this woman. She's my favorite. She's the one with, as she said, you know, she's like holding a baby and she's like, yeah, I have like, I don't know, however many kids, tons of kids, tons of pets. There's I think like she had five, she has five kids. Yeah, that makes and sense. And great Halloween decorations too. Great, she has yes. Really good Halloween decorations. Like, tons of tattoos. Like, I just want to hang out with this woman. She's such a straight shooter, a wall full covered with crosses, but just no bullshit with a really 
strong moral compass. You know, you see her and you're like, oh man, like this, this woman probably kicked my ass, but she knows what's right. And she doesn't give a shit who's trying to. She's got a bullshit meter that is very finely tuned. It's very clear. You know, another one that's just seeing through the truth of what's going on. So she's she, you know, of course, notices Natalia move in and has some commentary about that. And then later down the line, she ends up being a witness for some of the legal proceedings and involved in some of these recorded depositions that we see. And I just there's not a ton to say about her. I just love her the way that she pushes back and is, again, like not taking any shit from these attorneys that are really trying to be assholes and get her to say what they want her to say. But she's great. I'm sorry, I didn't write down her name. and I don't remember her, but she's a really cool character. Anyway, so Natalia goes missing. Basically, at this point, she was enrolled in adult day center. And I think actually had her working on her GED. Right. I think that was the point of that as well. Yeah. And so they call Christine and Michael to say that she hasn't been there. And she's just MIA because no one has eyes on her because they moved to Canada because their son was enrolling in that master's program up there. So the whole family's up there. And by the time they do locate her, this other woman named Cynthia has taken her in. She has, at first, you're like, oh, God, what's going on here? Because she says, I saw this essentially to me, what is a child in need? She starts taking her food stamps and her social security payments are now going to this other woman. I don't know how Natalia was able to do that, but she's an adult. Well, she's so. she's an adult, so she can go to social security and say, I want this person to be my payee. I Got don't it. want Michael to be my payee. Yeah, so that switched around and they Which were also... shady. It no, happens shady. very quickly. It happens right. very, very quickly. Yeah, it happens quickly and we also know that people just take advantage of people Absolutely, in these circumstances yeah. but not only are they doing that they they bring natalia in and then they start renting out her other place to someone <laughs> so they're like right. making money on right. michael and christine's apartment but so she gets evicted eventually because of they figure out what's going on but we learn like they've really taken her in cared for her needs and they seem to be a couple that saw something that wasn't right and they actually did something about it and started treating Natalia like a person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there, I have to say her responses to what, cause the police get involved and are like, what are you, what are you doing? She's like, yeah, I made, I'm making her dinner. I'm yeah. making sure she's clean. Like she's kind of a no bullshit person too, but there's totally. also that like sketchy, like, yeah, let's, we've also got a grift going here too. Yeah, but I, I think so. I mean, I, it, they it, also show up to court with her. <laughs> Long term, like years later. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So they try to petition to actually adopt Natalia. And I think they had still been trying to get legal guardianship after all these years have gone by. But Natalia ends up living with them for five years. I mean, it takes us all the way up to really 2022 when this documentary ends. Yeah. So the Barnetts must be thrilled about this. You know, somebody else is handling their problem, right? right? But there's trouble in paradise. They divorce, which you could have seen that coming. Oh my God. Like, how do they even last this long? Michael moves back to Indiana and Christine is still in Canada with the boys. And now really things are coming full circle and they're going to have to both start facing the music for their actions with Natalia because there's a lot of questioning about what was really 
the motivation behind getting that age change and yeah. some things come up. This is actually one of the twists really in the plot where you're like, oh, OK, this actually is kind of interesting. So Michael and Christine get charged with two counts of child neglect in Indiana in 2019, and they both turn themselves in to be, mm-hmm. you know, fingerprinted. They're both quickly released. And through more interviews specifically made for this documentary, Michael maintains that Christine had all the power in the relationship and made all the decisions. And this quickly takes on really vibes of the staircase (laughs) in that the doc starts to focus on Michael's upcoming trial. And now the narrative in very emotional terms is that Christine was this insane, domineering, you know, malignant narcissist who was abusing all of them. And I say that very carefully because if if only a third of this was true, she is a very problematic individual. Like it's it's clear she's got some real issues. Whereas Michael is annoying. Christine is somebody that like, it's very clear something's wrong with her. And he recounts abuse again through his lens, including an incident that is on video. And Natalia's nose is on the wall. I was talking about this before. There's a video of it. And so she's got her in a stress position, especially as a stress position for this disabled young woman. And she is being interrogated Mm -hmm. by Christine. Mm -hmm. Interrogated. Christine is making her sit in soiled pants. You can see at one point in this video that she does have what appears to be a fecal stain Mm -hmm. on the back of her t-shirt. And he claims that he witnessed Christina beating Natalia. Michael goes on to claim that he witnessed Christina beating Natalia and he reenacts Christina's actions, which is like violent pounding on the floor in a kneeling position to the point where he hurts his own knuckles. Now, it is very over the top. If I mean, she would have actually probably have been hospitalized. If, if yes. that was accurate, Natalia would have been hospitalized with that level of violence. So that seems sketchy. You know, this is just dawning on me now, but and because you mentioned like the staircase and another Michael Peterson in that case. But <laughs> I wonder if this Michael's attorneys actually like proposed a documentary be made, you know, because there's the footage, all the past footage of Michael's other interviews. Totally. Hey, like how about in real time, we get this sort of made so you can follow like the court proceedings and all of that, a la the staircase. I don't know if they thought (laughs) it would help or not, but I just wonder if they reached out to try to get someone to do something like this. I mean, and this scene where he's reenacting it, he's literally like, okay, you guys are gonna have to put the cameras there to get this. Like, you got it? Okay, am I in the frame? Okay, because I'm gonna like, and he starts getting down on the floor to show this feeding. Stupid. Oh, well, I know. So Jacob, the adult son that's living with Michael when they move back. He's the young man with ASD, which is important to discern here because Michael does not have any contact with his other children. They're younger, but Jacob is now an adult and he has chosen to to come live with Michael. And there's a lot of implications that Jacob like is not buying his mom's bullshit anymore. Like, right. Yeah. He he's had to leave his mom because of, of, it's very careful how they don't explicitly state it, but it is implied that he was really uncomfortable around his mom. 
Well, and even his own editing, you know, he's kind of talking out loud, his thinking process behind like, how much do I want to say? And I know there's like legal proceedings coming up, that sort of thing. So he's very mindful of that. But, you know, even he talks about Christine making him urinate all over Natalia's stuff after, you know, she had had an accident or soiled her pants or got it on some of their stuff in this revenge sort of situation. And the immense regret and shame that this now young man feels, you know, is so uncomfortable to watch. And he says of his mom, like, I felt like a Nazi following orders, you know, now that I look back on this and it's very telling. That's very, very telling. And I'm not I'm also not implying that Jacob, even as an individual with ASD, might not have his own motivations, his own drives and his own goals out Mm -hmm. of this. But he really does come across as a very morally centered person with a sense of shame about what he was, what he did. Yeah. And also questioning, like, maybe I was set up. You know, I mean, he doesn't say that, but you get the feeling that that's his thinking process. Yeah. Having that realization about a parent, you know, it's just it's it's a very in the moment thing. And, you know, that he's had to sort of like choose between two parents and all of that. So right, um, choose between two parents and the one you the the only safe version is somebody that is an unreliable narrator over the top exaggerator. Like, how bad must mom be if you're if you have to go to dad as your only trustworthy source it's very yeah and then then there's there's the whole microphone thing yeah there's this scene where like so jacob's microphone is left on and he's at the top of the stairs talking with his dad and so they kind of got the camera you can see their feet but it's like you think it's going to be this big like robert durst moment in the jinx revelation (laughs) right like and they they say something kind of mutter something about like a shotgun and someone being kicked down the stairs but then we never find out like it never pans out to anything (laughs) like this is lame like was this supposed to be like a big bombshell where we figure out they did something horrible and never addressed again like thanks That was totally unnecessary. But now we're down to the last two episodes. Right. And I promise they go fast. We're almost done. In episode five, the viewer gets to see these clips from a forensic interview that was done back in 2019 with Natalia and a female interviewer. Mm -hmm. And it's it's mm-hmm. a weird setup for an interview. I'm not going to critique too too much, but I I, I'm, I felt like I'm not given the context of the purpose of this interview. Mm-hmm. I can't really figure it out. There's not really a lot there. There are some conflicting and contradicting statements about abuse, but we really don't get much of anything. What's fascinating is Natalia is completely poised and calm. She does have like a little bit of an edge to her. Yeah. But by this point, she's just been living with that couple and their family for a while. And maybe they just I don't know, maybe they just are a no nonsense couple and they struggle with obstacles. But then again, I can't also I can also can't get away from the fact that, you know, this is a very stoic little girl, you know, your young woman. I'm not sure what it is, but you do see moments of joy of her playing with other kids. Yeah. Even if those kids are like a little bit younger than her, that is what always kind of takes me back to Mm -hmm. thinking that like her stoicism and her very careful discernment about who she talks to is about keeping herself safe. Yeah. And she can let her guard down with little kids. Right. But she's also managed to put together this well-spoken, even on the clips from Dr. Phil. She's very, very well-spoken and presents very well. Yeah, absolutely. She's had to 
grow up really fast, regardless of how old she is. So then we get more interviews from Michael. I mean, again, the desperation for this man not to go to prison, it just like seethes out of this documentary. And I agree, like you've worked in a prison, he'd probably get eaten alive in a hot second. (laughs) I mean, I kind of fear for Michael's safety going to prison, but he's droning on He's and got on. no containment. Oh. You know, he cannot contain any emotions at all. No. I mean, I, I think of myself as a pretty highly reactive person, but even, you know, working in prison, you, that shit gets, you, you uh-huh. get rid of that really quick. Uh-huh. You know? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. But he's, he really like drones on and on about all of the dirty laundry about Christine. He starts talking about, well, there's a lot. Oh, there's a lot. I mean, she's a dumbass for one thing. But this did not need to, this had no place in here as far as I'm considered, especially. Let's just say that, like, I think we can both agree that she's problematic, but you, but you're saying that you don't think a lot of this necessarily has a place. Yeah. So let me tease out a couple of things that are kind of thrown in at this last, you know, Michael's last Hail Mary to throw her under the bus for everything and let us get glimpses of that. So first he starts talking about sexual abuse and, you know, you think he's going into this like, okay, he's going to admit that actually, you know, he was sexually abused by his wife and this could be a man talking about this is pretty rare. Yeah. And so it's like, you're kind of leaned in (laughs) and then, yeah. yeah. And then he's like, yeah, she would withhold sex from me when she was mad at me. And I'm like, what the, (laughs) okay. So then after that big letdown, you he starts talking about her sexual behaviors and finding photos because, you know, all of their stuff is still connected to the cloud. And every time she sends a sexy photo to some other guy or takes a picture of her own, he sees it. He has he has to be tortured by this. But they can they show all of these pretty graphic photos of her, either selfies she's taking in sexy like lingerie or full on like her being with a man, like uh, sexual images where, you know, things are of course blocked out, but totally (laughs) unnecessary. Like it's unnecessary, but the, the, the thing that does make it funny is that they cut to one of the interviewees, which may be the sister. And she goes, yeah, Christine is completely technologically. She just doesn't get it. Oh my God. Like what? (laughs) Like she just had no idea that like every, (sighs) every sex, every selfie she was taking and every, and every record of their chat, you don't just throw away the phone you don't just wipe it everything is on the cloud yes yes i know but it just no i, I agree i don't i don't doubt that christine is a terrible person i think this was a total cheap shot and it was it was incredibly sexist to show yeah. these photos of her but again i stand with like this is a case study on michael not natalia right. again michael perceiving something again he's perceiving like you like we're leaning forward thinking that she you know completely abused him you know engaged in sexual assault or rape and it's like no she just yeah. wouldn't. She tried to coerce me with sex. If you come back, I'll have sex with you or something right. like And he's framing it as if he's just completely, yeah, you know, yeah. um, abused. I mean, by this point in the documentary, I swear I was like one more episode. Like I was so over it. I was so yeah. bored with his drama. And it just, again, like all over the place. I mean, I'll well, save my last rant, but let's No, 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 no. I I I completely support you in all of that. I it is one of the interesting thing that develops right now is Detective Davenport, who's the investigator for all the criminal side of this whole neglect aspect of the charges. Well, 
and he's now also he's deceased but mm-hmm. he goes to the ukraine to get a dna test on natalia's birth mom and it is a match it's like yep. 99.9 they're showing you the score it's mm-hmm. like there is absolutely no possibility that she's not natalia's mother and there's footage of bio mom in the interview saying natalia was born in 2003 meaning that she was 10 when her adopted parents michael and christine left her in the first apartment and 13 when they moved her and then they left the country to go to canada which to me is just like a a slam dunk legally it's not a slam dunk because a judge has proclaimed that she was 22 which is just bullshit and And she talks about like her birth being very notable and remembering because of these really tragic situations. Well, right. She she shares that one of the, the Ukrainian doctors, like you, you're you can't take care of this child. Yeah. You, you there's no way that you can take care of this child, and it's it feels kind of sketchy. I mean, certainly she's saying. Also, this is happening while the Ukraine is being bombed. Yeah. Like she's being she's taking pl- part in this interview and thinking talking very open about all these very emotional decisions. Like I wanted to take care of my child. I don't care if she had this. And I came away with from the f- I came away from this with the feeling that this was one of those things. And this is not a a ding on Ukraine because this happens in every orphanage around the world. Is that sometimes orphanages will like let's take this because those americans will mm-hmm. will you know they have such big hearts yeah. or whatever they're such patsies they'll adopt so yeah it's horrible now, what we never find out though is the connection between the skeevy adoption woman right in florida the first family like that that was a red herring too is like they get the name of the and oh, clearly yeah. those people maybe have, those people might even have come back with legal action and said you don't even yeah, we're not going to participate and don't mention us and leave us alone. Yeah, definitely. So next to episode six says last one, kill me now. <laughs> oh God. Like, literally, as as it's in bold. It's like literally flashing on our screen right now. So this last episode is all about Michael's court prep and trial. And yeah. the tricky part about this trial is that Natalia's age cannot be relitigated. Nope. So she has to be considered her legal age at the time that the neglect took place. So again, not gl- neglect of a child, but neglect, neglect of, of an adult. A disabled person. Yeah, an adult with a, a disability. And he is going to trial before Christine. So they're being tried separately. Through all of this drama, we see all this behind the scenes court prep. Michael is found not guilty. And after that, the charges against Christine end up getting dropped. I'm sure they just figured we're not going to win this based on the results of Michael's case. And they drop the charges against her. So the kicker in this is that they do end up interviewing some of the jurors after the fact. Because they are not happy. Yeah, the jurors never knew that it was determined that Natalia most likely was a child when all of this happened. They were only allowed to know what her legal age was and that she was an older adult. So they talk about what a heartbreaking thing to find out after you made what you think is a good decision. And legally, it was the, dare I say, the right one, given, you know, just the standards that are there. But that was really powerful to see, I thought. Well, 
And this is also where they go back to those neighbors from the first apartment that were so skeeved out mm-hmm. by this psychopathic adult living next to them. And they're like, now they're realizing, oh, my God, she was a child. Yeah. You know, and yeah. even they're starting to frame like reframe in their minds like, oh, her behaviors mm-hmm. were annoying, but they're kind of childlike. Yeah. And, we, you know, we should have seen this. And Christine is a total piece of work. When the documentary crew asks her for a comment, she replies with your network is whack. <laughs> like, <laughs> What? Well, okay, your network's whack. I don't know about the network, Christine, but this documentary is whack. So True. I'll agree with you. <laughs> I'll give I'll give you that. Maybe she's the smartest one in this whole thing. No. Yeah. So that's where it leaves us, and that all ended in 2022. So you discovered. She did do the. There's been more. I mean, it hasn't. Yeah, it, of this ends there. You know, she Natalia has been on Doctor Phil, which what feels now very. Expo- I mean, again, not surprising. Feels very exploitive, sure. even though she handles herself very well on mm-hmm. that as well. Mm-hmm. But you found out that there's probably going to be a follow up to this documentary, right? Yeah, it looks like no, they. God, they no. It hasn't been completely confirmed yet, but they're looking at like basically giving a two hour platform to tell it from Natalia's perspective. And at first I was like, you know, you had the kill me now. Mine was like, oh, Jeebus criminy. Yeah. Do we have to sit through another of this? And then as I read more of the article, I thought, well, no, I want her to be able to tell her story for what, from what she can remember. One of the most tragic things about this is there are times when the documentary seems to be framing. It seems like sometimes the documentary is framing Natalia's responses as her lying, where to me, it's very clear that she is comes from a traumatized background. She's been given conflictive information. Christine, even if Christine has only done 30% of what she's been alleged to do as far as feeding her information and saying, this is the way you answer questions. It makes sense now looking at it through a lens that that Natalia, she may not have known what the truth was Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. that time. So, you know, moving forward, I don't know how that'll affect her lens today, but she seems like a poised young woman. And I probably now I'm interested in seeing what she has to say. I hope it's not exploitive. I hope it gives her a chance to share her story. And I think at the end of this, you know, as everyone's kind of walking out of the courtroom and stuff, I was thinking, you know what? I hope you know, maybe civilly she can sue the shit out of them or get, at least get a private investigator to really like comb through everything at this point. And maybe that would, you know, lend to the civil piece of it. But I'd like to hear, you know, in a nice, linear, non-confusing way, what she has to say as well. Yeah. So, all right. Final review, Scott. I would say listen to this episode that mm-hmm. we've given you and skip the doc. There you go. <laughs> I think it's painful. I think Unless it's, it's, it's painful to watch Michael like Michael needs therapy. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, I'm there just you like, go. Get, get some treatment, man. And you better get your finances in order because if she comes after you civilly, she's going to have a great case. And by the way, that judge, like that guy should, mm-hmm. he needs to be held accountable for this. But I overall, as, as far as the, the documentary, it didn't need to be six episodes. It didn't need to have this level of distasteful exploitation. It could have been three solid episodes. It could have been really interesting without us just having to marinate in the weirdness of Michael. Like, Um, what's your story? Is the story about this child or is the story about a a disordered adult? You know? Yeah. How many brains? What about you? What do you think? Well, how many brains are you giving it? One. Got it. Yeah, I think, I really think this is a fascinating legal case. And I think it could have been done in a really tasteful way. 
if they had not drained my soul by giving Michael so much screen time yeah. <laughs> and approach this from more of like a neutral investigative journalistic way, I think I could have been on board with it because even if they give us the little setup and teaser of like, is she the real life orphan? <laughs> right? Like, okay, I could get sucked into that, but make it worth my time, make, make it legitimate. I felt like they were pushing a narrative that either just completely exploded and backfired or it made the Barnett's look horrible. And then it ends up at the end, you know, taking you all these twists and turns, but the end, then you just like, okay, we have all this empathy for Natalia. Right. So it was, it was just salacious, you know, kind of blows your mind at first and it's got the buzz and everyone's talking about it, but then it gets mindless. And I just, I don't know. I thought it was trash. We've reviewed some bad docs, but this, I feel like this is the first one I regret picking because now we're giving it more attention. <laughs> so I, well, would, I mean, yeah. I, I, I like the what you said, though. I think that there's this is a very this is a fascinating legal case. This is a very interesting abuse. It's just the Michael factor. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. this is like without getting in trouble for diagnosing the the relationship between Michael and Christine is very reminiscent of a very common dynamic between certain types of personalities, except that we usually see it flipped. We usually see sure. a like a narcissistic male and a borderline female. That's or at least that's what the media, that's what sort of our culture presents mm -hmm. to us. And here, again, I'm not diagnosing them, but there are some real traits that come through. Sure. At least, but then again, you've got an unreliable narrator. So it's really hard to discern what's actually going on. And then the people that you want to trust, like the Christine's attorney was such a jackass. He was such yeah. an unprofessional jackass. Absolutely. Um, God, so defensive. I mean, where's your thick skin as a, yeah. you know, defense attorney. But, but I actually, so I put down 1.5 brains because I think it had the story has so much potential is so interesting. Anyway, there we go. We yet again did it for you. <laughs> and I'm sure most people watched it. So they're like, you're not doing us any favors. We sat through True. it too. But there's our two cents. You asked for it. So, all right, Dr. Scott, thank you. Thank and you, Dr. Shiloh. We'll see you next time, everyone, on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience 
and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>